You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. I have Irve Tiriak. He's an associate project scientist at UC San Diego Health. And we're going to talk about uh, developing precision medicine platforms uh, and specifically 3D organoid modeling, uh, patient-derived organoids, which I've spoken about a few times. So, Irve, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I don't know if – I think I've asked this before. So patient-derived organoids – can you just describe that process? And if it's not patient-derived, where do these cells come from to make an organoid? Yeah, so the, the term organoid is actually uh, quite an old term, uh, but recently has been associated with the methodologies that have been developed by um, uh, Dr. Hans Cleaver and Dr. Uh, Toshi Sato, um, uh, who have worked together um, back in the early 2010s. Uh, and they published uh, some really nice series of papers uh, demonstrating the procedures, the protocols, and the methods for growing three-dimensional organ-like structures, uh, initially from the intestine and then later on from other organs. Um, and in collaborating with uh, Dr. Cleavers, my previous uh, mentor, Dr. Tuvison, um, they uh, collaborated and helped establish the initial methods for the pancreatic organoids. Um, so everything that I have done uh, in the Tuvison lab and now independently at uh, UC uh, San Diego has been starting from adult tissues, uh, predominantly human in my case, but we can also do it from the mouse models, for example. Uh, you can also make organoids from IPS cells, so starting with the stem cell and differentiating into a specific tissue lineage uh, and maintaining it in an organoid-like fashion. Uh, but that's not really my specialty. It's sort of a different track. That's the engineering track, I would guess. So you're focused on deriving uh, pancreas-like organoids? Yes. My, uh, my specialty has been uh, uh, pancreatic cancer, uh, specifically pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma um, uh, for both personal and scientific reasons. It's a very deadly disease. Uh, it's also still understudied uh, and has a lot of potential for um, leading to improvement in the clinic. Uh, so we would like to make an impact uh, through the research. So in terms of the pancreas, I mean, I know an organoid approximates the function of the organ, but how many 
different functions and different cell types and different parts of the pancreas can be modeled successfully in an organoid, what do you pick? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, so indeed, the organoid system uh, initially was described as containing all the relevant cell types from the organ from which it's derived. And that was the intestinal organoid. Um, the pancreatic organoids, however, uh, they're specifically modeling the ductal uh, cells, the epithelial ductal cells from the pancreas, uh, which we think are the precursor for the cells that lead to cancer, to ductal adenocarcinoma. So we're not modeling uh, using the ductal organoids. We're not modeling the acinar exocrine compartment, uh, the one that's secreting all the enzymes that digest your food. And we're also not modeling the neuroendocrine cells of the pancreas, the islet cells that generate the insulin and other hormones. Uh, so this is very specifically looking at ductal uh, systems. Uh, and we are studying both normal as well as preneoplastic and neoplastic, meaning cancer in that system. Well, I mean, do you think that you'll be missing out on potential effects? I mean, the I would think the pancreas is very coordinated like any organ system so that all the different parts talk a lot and have a lot of interaction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the ideal scenario is to have all the compartments present uh, when you're modeling something. Um, however, uh, the initial first step was to develop the methods for specifically modeling the normal and the transformed uh, ductal system. Now that we have that, we're starting to put in uh, back additional compartments, specifically the uh, mesenchymal compartments or the fibroblasts that surround um, uh, the cancer cells, uh, as well as uh, immune cells uh, that are also a major part of the microenvironment of the tumor. Now, to, to go a little further from there, um, uh, it would be ideal to also have the SNR and the endocrine cells present uh, in, in sort of in the same culture, uh, but that becomes a very complex culture. Um, and you have to remember that to support the growth and propagation of these cells in vitro, you have to provide them with um, the uh, media and the cues for their survival and uh, proliferation. And those are not exactly the same for epithelial cell, mesenchymal cell, endocrine cells. Um, so uh, we can probably find a happy medium to keep everything in culture, but I don't think that has been described yet, at least not for propagation of the model. Do you see any remodeling going on once cells are in culture, especially if you have multiple types or a single type? Are they trying to establish structure? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so th there's been some really nice work published by uh, my uh, former um, mentor, Dr. Tugason, with some of my colleagues that has shown uh, very nicely that if you put in culture the ductal organoids with the cancer-associated fibroblast, they will form um, structures and they will remodel both the cancer cells and the mesenchymal pro uh, programs so that um, uh, they become basically uh, established as a synergistic uh, culture. So absolutely, there is a lot going on once you put different cell types uh, in co-culture. In co uh, and if they if they synergize, then uh, they can remodel into different compartments. So if you compare um, uh, you know, a very primitive organoid with just one cell type versus the ones that you're trying to do now, the more complex ones, are you seeing very different behavior or is the behavior staying pretty consistent? So the, the behavior in terms of the uh, genomics stays consistent. We don't see genetic drift, uh, at least not over you know, 10 passages or so. Uh, what does differ when you change the culture conditions is typically the transcriptome. Um, and th that sort of makes sense because you have now uh, 
uh, additional signaling from different cell types, and that's going to remodel the uh, uh, the cell's behavior. How do you study um, pancreatic cancer, for instance? So, are you culturing just uh, you know tumor cells, and that becomes your organoid? It's like a tumor-based organoid, or do you have okay. uh, an organoid system whereby one you know just a part of that organoid that you have in culture is comprised of tumor cells? Oh, I understand. So uh, the process typically starts by acquiring the tumor. So this is patient, you know, tumor. Uh, and then the tissue is dissociated into um, small fragments, not necessarily single cells uh, in general. Actually, single cells sometimes is detrimental for the generation of organoids. Uh, and from these fragments, we see organoids form. Now, at this point, what we would like to do in the laboratory is to isolate just the tumor organoids and sort of preserve those as a tumor-only culture. And if there is normal organoids um, also present, we'd like to also separate those and have a normal culture that's free of tumor. Um, so in general, our cultures are either tumor or normal. They're typically not mixed. Uh, and we know that because when we sequence uh, the organoid, uh, if it is tumor, we only see uh, uh, the mutations that are present in the tumor, and there doesn't seem to be any contribution from normal cells. And on the other side, from a normal culture, we don't see any uh, uh, neoplastic mutations. We don't see any transformation of the cells. Um, so the cultures are independent, and as far as we can tell, they are 100% pure tumor or normal. Uh, and that's sort of by design, and it's also because the media conditions that we're currently using are promoting only the growth of this epithelial ductal system. So the other cell types that are present in the tumor being um, fibroblast and immune cells, they're not able to proliferate and maintain themselves in culture. So within one or two passages, uh, all these other contaminants are basically gone and you're just left with the ductal, either normal or tumor cells. Um, we typically make sure that we're starting only from tumor tissue when we're trying to obtain a tumor organoid by starting with tissue that is specifically taken from um, you know, close to the center, of the tumor, not too close to the edge, uh, where you potentially have some mixing of normal and tumor cells. And same thing with the normal cells. If we're trying to make normal organoids, we'll start from a piece of tissue that's removed from the tumor where there's less likelihood of having contaminating uh, tumor cells present. Well, what's wrong with having a mixture? I mean, in the body, you know, you can't avoid having a mixture and you can't avoid having the interaction with other, you know, for instance, pancreas cells that are not tumor cells. So is it just, it would, it would make it difficult to get the right data and do the right testing if you had a mixture? Is that why? Uh, yeah, so it's, it's partially an, uh, a question of how do you preserve a, a specific ratio uh, if you're going to maintain the two of them in culture for a long term? So to back up for a second, uh, initially, we try to establish the models independently, characterize them, and basically have you know tumor versus normal separate. Uh, but we are able to put them back together at specific ratio. So we can do 50-50 mix uh, in culture. Uh, and we can also label the cell so we know what we're looking at. So we can transform the uh, tumor organoids to be um, red fluorescent uh, and the normal organoids to be green fluorescent, for example, and put them in culture and be able to actually tell which one is a normal cell versus a tumor cell. Uh, but if you maintain them from the get-go as a sort of a mix uh, my guess is that this mix, this ratio wouldn't stay constant. It would keep evolving over time. And one interesting fact um, uh, of the organoid methodology is that typically normal cells are able to divide faster and are more successful uh, in their division because the tumor cells are typically aneuploid. Uh, so they don't have uh, equal genomes to divide. 
uh, at every division and not every di division is successful for the tumor cells. So uh, if you have both normal and tumor cells, at least for pancreatic duct adenocarcinoma in culture at the same time, and you keep passaging over time, the expectation is that the normal cells will outgrow the tumor cells. Oh, it's funny. I thought the tumor cells would outgrow the normal cells, I guess, because supposedly they divide extremely fast and they're aggressive, right? Yeah, but you have to remember that in the organoid system, the normal cells don't behave like exactly the same as the normal cells uh, in your pancreas, for example. They're not quiescent. They're not, um, they're replicative in this, in this instance. So it's more um, similar to an inflammation response where the normal cells have to divide to do some wound healing. Uh, and in that case, normal cells can divide really fast because, as you know, we heal pretty quickly, actually. Okay, I see. So what are you trying to figure out? <laughs> I should ask you this first. What are you <laughs> trying to study and figure out by making these, uh, you know, these tumor organoids or normal cell so, organoids? Yeah, so the major goal of my research is really to move toward precision medicine using these models uh, with the um, uh, expectation that uh, making these models from patient would help us uh, better understand uh, the sort of the biology of the tumors. Uh, and we know that every patient is different. And we've observed that every model that we've generated is, is quite different in its response to, for example, standard of care chemotherapy treatment. Um, so we think that having a model for the patient would help us identify the right treatment for the patient. Uh, but beyond precision medicine, having these models is extremely useful for research because we're now talking about looking at cohorts of models of you know, close to 100 models now instead of just of a few cell lines to represent the entirety of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. So we have a much better representation of uh, you know, the different types of cancers that are seen in patients, both early cancers and late cancers, uh, because using organoid methodology, we're able to make models from uh, fine needle biopsies, for example. So we don't need a lot of um, starting sample to make these models, um, which enables us to study really late cancer where all you can get is a little tiny needle biopsy from a metastatic site, for example. So what are you seeing? What's the difference in the models? You said there's many different kinds, many different kinds of, you know, of cancer types. What, what kind of variation do you see? Yeah, so the, the first variation is at the genomic level. So in pancreatic cancer, we expect that the majority of the models will have a curas mutation, and that is true. Um, but after that, you're seeing a lot of P53, and then it becomes very split. So there's a lot of um, uh, mutations that are, are model-specific, uh, and we're not sure if those mutations are impacting the response to therapy, for example. So that's one uh, ongoing area of research. Uh, I think the major difference that we've seen that's been extremely interesting to study has been the response to chemotherapeutic agents, for example, where we've tested a cohort of uh, close to 70 different patient-derived models uh, using the standard of care chemotherapeutic agents that are used in the clinic for pancreatic duct carcinoma patients. And we're observing uh, distinct responses from very resistant to very sensitive uh, for each agent. Uh, and uh, we're seeing patterns where some models are very sensitive and some models are very resistant to all therapy. Uh, and then there's a lot of models sort of in between that uh, that are sensitive to maybe one agent but resistant to the rest of them. Um, and well, using- the, Yes? One question here. I mean, from what I've heard, cancer is very heterogeneous. So- That's right. If you see something that has a P53 mutation, that could probably only mean it's the predominant one. It doesn't mean it's the only one. And it probably has KRAS2, just maybe mm -hmm. in a lower amount. 
and vice versa for the KRAS predominant one. So I would think that would definitely confound the results unless you looked at all the possible mutations and, you know, sorted them kind of like in a Pareto and saw which ones are, are predominant because from conversations I've had, it seems like they're all there. They're just there in varying amounts. Right. So you're talking about associating the mutation um, frequency, the allele frequency of a mutation to a specific therapeutic response, correct? Yeah, I think that because I guess that's more of a, a right. true picture of what's really going on, right? Right. So um, that, that's a fantastic question. And in fact, we haven't been able to uh, associate um, general sensitivity or resistance to treatment with those uh, mutations. And the issue, like you mentioned, is the majority of the patients are going to have a Keras and a P53 mutation. So it's not, um, uh, there's not enough uh, either samples or there's not enough diversity in the mutation profile at that top level to really be able to associate that to a therapeutic response. Uh, what would be interesting is to find these passenger mutations, or I guess uh, maybe they're not passengers necessarily, but they might not be the main driver drivers of cancer like Keras and P53 and, and our models that may give a sensitivity to a specific agent. Uh, so that that's more what I'm talking about, not necessarily association with Keras and P53, because again, we, we've looked and we haven't seen those um, specific cor uh, correlation to sensitivity or resistance with just those mutations. Well, also too, if you expose a uh, tumor organoid to various chemotherapy protocols, um, you know, the ones that don't completely kill it, what happens then, you know, can you observe the development of resistance and the, um, it, you know, new mutations that are becoming predominant or, you know, there's a selection process by which now, okay, this mutation was, uh, was rare in this previous sample, but now it's predominating after this chemo treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that work is ongoing. All the resistance and the sensitivity that we've described uh, so far has been pre-existing, meaning it came with the model. Um, and uh, we're now trying in current studies to uh, see if we can uh, select resistant clones from uh, a pre-existing organoid and profile those clones and see exactly what happened. You know, like you're saying, which uh, mutations have been enriched for uh, and how did this resistant clone become resistant? Um, so that, that's a great question, but I don't have an answer for you right now on that question. Uh, however, these models are definitely usable for that type of study. Well, I guess to make it even worse, I don't know how this plays in, but um, I guess I keep referring to it because it was really interesting. I spoke to uh, Florencia McAllister, and she's studying the microbial constituent of pancreatic tumors, meaning that they have their own microbiome. So in these yeah. models, I, I would guess no microbes are included, certainly not deliberately. But if you were to, would that completely change the model and how it works? Yeah, that's a great question. Um and that, that area of microbiology and how it actually affects the, um, uh, the tumor's behavior is of high interest uh, in the field right now. Uh, and yeah, absolutely, you're right. We're not including those microbes in the current cultures. It would be quite difficult to maintain them over multiple passages, over multiple passages without having you know, gross over-contamination and having to get rid of the culture. Um, so that's sort of an ongoing uh, potential area of research, uh, not necessarily for myself, but in the field. The um, uh, interesting observation that we have is um, some models are unfortunately contaminated uh, pretty much within one passage after establishment, uh, typically with, uh, with yeast, but sometimes with bacteria. 
Um, and the current question, is that something that was pre-existing in the patient tumor or, or is that a mistake on, on our part um, and some sort of cross-contamination with something? And that's unclear at this point. Uh, it would be really interesting to have sort of a parallel generation of organoid models and try to generate whatever microbes and um, fungi uh, cultures are pre-existing in the tumor. However, that's not going to be yeah. trivial. That's true. So when you say uh, your model gets contaminated by, I guess, bacteria, fungi, yeast, et cetera, what happens to the, to the organoid? Does it just die typically, or does it still maintain and live on, just look different? Like what happens? Yeah, so that's, that's a rare occurrence, uh, luckily for us in generating the models. Uh, I would say maybe you know, 10% or less uh, frequency. And it typically happens within a few days after um, uh, processing the, the tissue from the patient. Um, and uh, you get gross overgrow, uh, overgrowth of uh, typically fungi or so yeast, um, and you lose the model um, pretty quickly. Uh, so they're not they're not able to sort of you know maintain a sort of a healthy ratio for both uh, cell types. Um, gotcha. So for us, it's a complete loss. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, there's so many experiments to do. It's it's impossible. You know, there's, there's only so much you can do. There is right. There's a lot of things um, uh, that are possible. So the first thing that we focused on is just making the models, characterizing them trying to demonstrate for ourselves and for the community that they are representative of the tissue from which they're derived. Uh, and I think now that we have done, hopefully, a good job at that first step, we're going to move on towards the, the more interesting experiments, which involve the co-cultures, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, so what, what uh, specifically are you hoping to figure out with your new experimentation? Um, well, one goal is, like you mentioned earlier, is to understand resistance to treatment. Uh, we know that most of the patients with this disease are even if they're responsive to a treatment, they're gonna relapse eventually. Um, and we don't necessarily understand all the mechanisms by which they become resistant and how to prevent that resistance from being an issue clinically. Um, so I would say that's my um, sort of primary research focus. Um, and the secondary research focus is more engineering and protocol driven and, and trying to um, uh, sort of better the protocols to be able to generate these organoids faster at higher uh, efficiency, and also to be able to generate um, the uh, cell types, the other cell types that come from models for the other cell types that come from the tumor, such as the cancer-associated fibroblasts and macrophages uh, and other cells that we can obtain from the tumor so that we can then reconstitute a more complex co-culture system at a later time. So it's it's both okay. a um, uh, science question and sort of an engineering question at this point. And with the current models you've developed, any uh, interesting or inexplicable behavior or, or results you're seeing so far? Well, there's a lot of variation from model to model, uh, even starting with the morphology. You know, uh, a lot of these are um, sort of round, cystic, um, three-dimensional objects, uh, but sometimes they're filled. Sometimes um, they have um, sort of interesting structures that we can't really explain at this time. Um, so there's probably too much variation for us to really be able to, um, um, to be too surprised uh, by one single uh, uh, phenotype. Um, but I guess one of the most surprising finding that I've had, at least for myself, uh, was when we uh, did the transcriptome analysis of our cohort. And again, this was um, 40 or plus models. Uh, we noticed that there was very good representation of both the classical and the basal subtype 
of pancreatic cancer that have been previously described by other groups um, in the, in the organoid models. Uh, and I was pleasantly surprised by that result um, because all of these organoids are grown in the exact same condition. So same media, same matrix, same everything. Uh, and the uh, one possibility was that the milieu in which we're growing the organoids would reprogram the cells in such a way that you would lose that um, subtype specificity from the patient. Um, and uh, it appears, at least so far, that we're maintaining that uh, subtype specification in the organoid, which is which is good for for research and for really having representative models to study. What does it look like um, for early stage cancers versus very late stage? What kind of differences do you see? So the the late stage cancers that we have uh, mostly come from uh, these uh, liver mets or sometimes lung mets um, from which we've obtained small biopsies and generating the models. Uh, and those are clearly more aggressive. Um, you know, they, they appear to be generally a little bit more filled and solid. Um, they are typically much more resistant uh, to the chemotherapeutic treatments. Um, however, they're not completely resistant. We often find some, uh, some uh, drugs that are very efficacious in killing the models, even if they're advanced. Um, and they seem to grow at about the same proliferation rate as the early cancer models. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, these early models, and I'm, I'm putting sort of air quotes on that, um, they t uh, tend to be a little bit more uh, cystic um, and um, generally more responsive to treatment um, than the late uh, derived models. In terms of mutation profiles, uh, we see uh, a lot more um, uh, mutation burden in the advanced models than the early models, and that makes, uh, that makes sense. I think one of the issues in pancreas cancer uh, is that with a late diagnosis, most patients are diagnosed with significant tumor sizes already. So if you were to look at our cohort, even though we have 60 plus models, I think out of the 60 tumor models that we have, only two are derived from stage 1A and 1B tumors uh, because those are extremely rare uh, uh, diagnosis events uh, and resection events. Uh, so uh, we do have these early models that have been resected, that have been removed by a surgeon. Uh, but I would say they're probably not the earliest type of cancer that we could really be studying in the laboratory. So uh, it, it's still really important that we accumulate more models from these really early patients. So, you know, true stage one uh, patients to really compare to the late uh, metastatic models. A question in the, um, in the metastases, um, are they composed just of uh, pancreas type cells? I just wonder if, um, if when a cancer metastasizes, does it ever form a, a chimera, you know, where it somehow corrupts the cells that it's taken root in? You, you said pancreatic cancer, where does it metastasize to typically? Uh, the typical metastatic sites are the liver, uh, and then that's okay. followed by the lung. Um, and initially, I would say in the really early stage cultures, you probably have some normal liver cells and normal lung cells that would persist in culture. Uh, and we've had actually really interesting observations. So for example, one of our early um, lung uh, metastasis derived organoids, we've noticed uh, a few uh, cystic organoids in culture in really early cultures that were actually ciliated and spinning around. Um, and those were probably derived from the normal lung epithelium uh, and not actually cancer. However, upon passaging, we basically lost all of those ciliated organoids and we're, we're left. We're just a tumor keras-containing organoids. Um, so by the time we characterize these models, 
for example, in that model, I believe uh, P53 was at 100%, P53 mutation was at 100% allele frequency, uh, which indicated that you really didn't have any normal cells left. But I guess, I don't know if, uh, just like very bluntly, um, mm -hmm. you know, if a pancreatic cancer metastasizes to the liver, is it able through cell-to-cell -cell communication, exosomes, whatever, is it able to turn some of the liver cells cancerous? I guess to put it bluntly. So does it create a metastasis that's composed of two different organ type cells, or is it still pancreatic cells that are just set up shop in the liver? Yeah, so you're asking me a, a question for which I'm not equipped to, to give you a proper answer. As far as I know, that's not been demonstrated, um, but I am not an expert on that. Uh, on this field, I don't think you can, you know, transform another cell uh, through some sort of, you know, communication. Well, the reason why I ask is because from what I've read, um, the exosomes released by, you know, like a primary tumor are able to at least uh, set up a niche, I mean, set up a prefer preferential yes. place by which a metastasis can occur. So they're at least somewhat changing the recipient cells, the liver cells, for instance, but I don't know if they're going as far to turn them into cancer cells and change right. their genes and everything and rearrange their DNA. It's, it's right, a right. big leap, but have you ever heard of such a thing or no one knows? So I, I don't think, again, on the transforming, meaning like altering the, the genome of a, you know, adjacent cell, uh, I'm not sure that that research uh, evidence exists right now, but there is actually good evidence, uh, as far as I know, uh, for reprogramming the microenvironment of a tumor. So if a, a tumor cell from the pancreas seeds in the liver, it's able to, uh, over time, reprogram its environment to support the tumor growth. Um, and we know that that doesn't happen instantaneously. It takes some time for that tumor cell uh, to, to reprogram its environment. And there's great work coming from multiple labs that are sort of dissecting uh, how the tumor cells are able to uh, reprogram their environment. Um, which I'd be happy to share uh, with you later. The, um, uh, I think if there is any example of, of sort of cross-transformation across cell types, it would probably be in viral-driven uh, cancer models. Uh, but again, I, that's not really my specialty, so I can't really speak uh, on, that, on that myself. No, it's okay. It's just something I thought of. And mm -hmm. guys, I'm, I'm no, happy to hear be... that it doesn't seem to be that way. Thank God, you know? Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it would be. Uh, it would be dramatic if if tumor cells were able to do that for sure. Okay. Well, very good. Wait. Well, it's a it's a difficult job, I'm sure, for you to develop these models because, like I said, there's you know maybe microbial stuff going on, you know, exosomes that are coming out or going in, uh, different cells signaling to each other. I mean, it's just endless. So I guess in one way, it's amazing the models work at all. But uh, right. You know, thank goodness that they seem to. So that's great. Right. So one of the things that we were aiming to do with our initial studies uh, in the Tuvison lab was to demonstrate that these models actually were able to recapitulate a phenotype that was observed in the patient. So, um, And that would be a, a cancer intrinsic phenotype in this case, because we're only looking at the cancer cells and the organoid again. Uh, and the way we were able to sort of demonstrate that for ourselves uh, was in, in sort of a two-pronged fashion. The first one is we had organoid models from patients from which we really uh, had good uh, knowledge about their clinical outcome. We knew which treatments they responded to and which treatments they did not respond to. And the organoid models tended to uh, demonstrate similar responses when tested ex vivo with the same agents, meaning if the patient was sensitive to a specific uh, treatment, the organoid tended to be more specific to that type of treatment. 
and vice versa. Uh, and then the other way we're able to demonstrate some sort of predictability from the organoid to the patient was to extract um, transcriptomic uh, biomarkers of sensitivity from the organoid cultures. So using all of our testing with chemotherapeutic agents and all of the RNA sequencing we had done on the models, uh, we did a correlation between these two um, data sets and we pulled out gene signatures that um, were correlated with sensitivity to chemotherapy and gene signatures that were correlated to resistance to chemotherapy. And then we applied those same gene signatures to uh, patient cohorts from which we did not have models, but for which we knew the outcome. Uh, and were able to uh, statistically show that um, there was uh, increased responses to treatments and increased survival for the patients uh, that actually had the sensitivity transcriptomic biomarkers. So it's mm. really, uh, another method that uh, demonstrated to us uh, that the organoids predicted, at least in part, the response to therapy. Now, again, That's I don't great. think that organoid by itself, you know, cancer by itself is going to be able to tell us the whole picture. We're going to need to put in these other cell types we talked about to really get a more complete picture of what the tumor will respond to and how it will respond to the treatment. Uh, but at least this first step was successful, uh, which is important for the next step. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, very good. Um, everybody, what's the best way for people to find out more, you know, read some of your papers and uh, interact with, with the lab or you? <laughs> Podcasts like this one are a really good way to, to interact and, and learn more about this, uh, this science. Uh, but beyond that, there is uh, quite a lot of great re uh, resources. Um, uh, online for learning about this cancer and about the research that we're doing. Uh, there's two great foundations that work um, in pancreas cancer, the Lust Garden Foundation uh, and the Pancreatic Action Network or PANCAN. Uh, they both have fantastic resources uh, for patients and also for people that want to learn more about this. And if you want to do a deep dive on the topic, I suggest you head to the uh, PubMed website and just start Googling some names or some questions uh, and start pulling out some reviews uh, or perspectives on the research. Uh, and those are usually a good introduction to the, to the research uh, that's ongoing. Uh, and from there, you can jump in in the primary research articles uh, that contain all the data that we've published so far. Okay, excellent. Well, it. thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.